Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. I am Ikrash Guftachima, your host for the New Books Network. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Michael Hersfeld to talk about his book, Subversive Archaism, Troubling Traditionalists and the Politics of National Heritage, published by Duke University Press in January 2022. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Hersfeld. My uh, pleasure. You introduce yourself to those in our audience who don't know you already. Well, uh, I'm a social anthropologist. Uh, I grew up in Britain. Uh, my background was uh, that of a, a refugee family. Uh, so I think I was always exposed to a lot of cultural differences right from the start. And my parents also enjoyed traveling overseas. Uh, I became very interested in Greece, partly as a result of a school trip. And uh, eventually, after not doing very well, I must say, as a, an undergraduate in archaeology at, at Cambridge, I, um, uh, I went to Greece on a, on a scholarship that uh, allowed me to uh, find my way uh, to social anthropology, which I'd already actually begun to suspect for a while was much more suited to my temperament than archaeology. I'm frankly more interested in, even if I do deal with material things, in approaching them through people. And uh, the other thing that perhaps uh, might interest your audience is that uh, although I set out as a specialist in modern Greece, I've actually done field work uh, in both Italy and perhaps more surprisingly in Thailand, and that's part of the story behind this book. Yes, I was uh, very curious about that, like how you're working in, you know, like these very different locations at this, uh, but at the same time, like these events, I feel like are taking place in a lot of communities. So it makes sense that you would draw these connections. So tell us a little bit about the genesis of this book. Well, in a way, your last comment, I think, points in the right direction. Uh, part of my training, I did my, my doctorate at Oxford, and part of our training emphasized the importance of comparison. There's, of course, been a lot of criticism of the comparative method, uh, particularly because it has associations with colonial rule. Uh, and uh, so even though I think that's not a necessary connection, it's one that we have to take very seriously. Uh, I am not particularly in favor of what people like to call controlled comparisons. My goal is to make outrageous comparisons and then show why they're not outrageous. Um, I think that's much more interesting. It provokes uh, a lot more uh, in the way of new thinking. Um, I had never intended to do fieldwork in Thailand. I went to Thailand at the age of about 50 uh, with the intention of meeting one of my oldest friends who happens to be Thai. Uh, But... uh, through him, I got to meet uh, some members of the local intellectual community, including one or two really interesting anthropologists, and came back to Cambridge now, Cambridge, Massachusetts, of course. I've been at Harvard since 1991, um, uh, with uh, the idea that, yes, this is a place that uh, interests me. And I was very curious about why it seemed oddly familiar, even though it was very different from any other country I'd visited. In the end, I came to two conclusions about that, both of which I think are relevant uh, to this discussion. The first has to do with my own background. There were quite a few Thai boys at the school that I went to in uh, in London, and uh, I think there was something just very familiar about the interactions that made me feel 
suddenly at home in a very curious way. Um, but the other was the sense that Thais had a certain attitude to European outsiders that was not unlike that of Greeks. Uh, this also generated another concept uh, that comes into play in the book and is the subject of the book I'm now working on, namely crypto-colonialism. In other words, uh, seeing how much further the poison of colonialism uh, spread than simply those patches so marked on the globe. Uh, So uh, that was the beginning. And then I I, uh, decided that since I'd been working on uh, the clash between state governments and uh, or national governments and uh, local people over questions of historical memory and especially uh, heritage, it would be a good idea to try to do something uh, similar in the Thai context that would be immediately comparable to what I'd done in both Greece and Italy. In Italy, I actually worked in Rome. Uh, and so working in another capital city also provided another basis of comparison. Both of the places I worked in, in Rome and Bangkok, respectively, are in symbolically overloaded places uh, within the national capitals. And this, I think, really focused my mind on some of the topics that have now emerged in in this book. Yes, definitely. Um, Yeah, when I started reading the book, you know, like I instantly was like, oh, this sounds so familiar. And, you know, like this is happening like in this place or that place. And then like as I got more into the book, like I was very impressed with the variety of examples that you draw from around the globe. So tell us, what is subversive archaism and who are subversive archaists? <laughs> well, um, I tried to define it in the book as the uh, seeking for uh, an older uh, form of social organization, political organization, um, as a means of pushing back against the nation state, or what I call the ethno-national state, which I think is actually a better description for what most states have become, even if they weren't intended that way in the first place. The nation state is, uh, as among others, part of Chatterjee has pointed out, but I pointed out in a very different way, I think, in this book, um, it's a very new invention. I mean, it really only appears in its present form uh, at the end of the 18th century. And by now, it's become common sense. Well, everybody since Gramsci has recognized that common sense is a form of hegemony. Uh, it's really uh, the uh, way in which we are led uh, without thinking very often to accept as inevitable a certain form of, of consociation. What the subversive archaeists do is recognize that although they have a deep affection for much of what we would call their heritage or their traditions, and they share that affection with the nation state, they don't think the nation state does a very good job of preserving it. Uh, And uh, they even uh, recognize that the precursor of the nation state may have been an ethnically much more complex mix uh, than uh, the ethno-national logic would have us believe. So basically, they're subversive because they're saying, look, guys, we know better than you do how to manage tradition. You are essentially neocolonial lackeys. That's where the crypto-colonialism also comes in. You're doing things that look very Western, that look very Anglo-French, if you will, or German. They don't really have very much to do with our understanding of heritage. 
And so why are you telling us not to behave in ways that we consider legitimate? Now, this is not to say that the state couldn't argue back, but you live within a nation state and you have broken its laws. And that's where, of course, the conflicts arise. Yes, thank you for explaining that. So in the book, you discuss three quite complex facets of the images and symbols that subversive archives mimic or mock, and which are simultaneously local, national, and global. Could you elaborate these facets and how subversive archives use them? You've pinpointed something quite important here, I think, which is the scalar nature of the argument. Uh, I began working, actually, I think every anthropologist nowadays does work in this way, implicitly at least. Every time you do a field project in a specific location, it is also contained within or sometimes tries to spill outside uh, something like a nation state. Um, but I began to focus on this much more explicitly in a 2004 book uh, called The Body in Politic, which of course was uh, intended as a pun, um, in which I was looking at the bodies of artisans as sites of uh, hegemony, of domination, of unequal relationships between artisans and their apprentices, um, and the learning not only of craft, but also of certain behaviors uh, that paralleled similar ideas, first of all, about the particular location in relationship to the capital city or the major cities of the country, but then of the country itself uh, in terms of its relationship with the European Union and more uh, and even broader uh, geopolitical entities. So this kind of leaping among levels on a scalar frame uh, seems to me now to be perhaps one of the most useful things that anthropology as a discipline can contribute uh, to political analysis. Uh, that's certainly been my hope. And I think that these subversive archaeists understand their principle very well. They know that while they're talking very locally, they are also speaking to perhaps numerous levels. Let me give you um, another example, not from my own work, but from something that I mentioned in the book, Fiona Greenland's work on the tomb robbers in Italy. Um, they are often very local, they're local heroes, but their heroic status is also understood at the national level because against the, uh, the, the national bureaucratic discourse, they are arguing that as they fossick around in the soil, they are actually quite literally closer to the true soil of the country. And they play with a metaphor of connection to the soil that is, of course, very deeply rooted uh, in many uh, nationalisms around the world, but particularly, I think, uh, in the kind of uh, European right-wing uh, nationalist logic. Um, and they do it very successfully because in that way, they've been able to uh, fend off uh, the kind of opprobrium that official Italy would like to heap on their heads. Yes. Um, how do you compare metaphors of family kinships with national kinships, and what is their relationship with speciality of power? Well, national kinships are metaphors, right? I mean, every country seems to set itself up in some way as the mother and father of people. There are uh, some more elaborate versions of this, for example, in Turkey, um, Carol Delaney has written very interestingly about this, among others, um, uh, that uh, where you see that, that this is a very explicit 
exploitation uh, of uh, the uh, dominant local idiom of kinship uh, to represent the whole country as a family. Um, kinship is spatial in the sense that although it isn't the same thing as locality, it's often very closely related to residence through inheritance. And that nexus of kinship, inheritance, and space is what gives us the logic of the relationship between uh, heritage uh, and the nation state. Uh, Richard Handler was arguing many years ago that uh, the idea of the nation state uh, was grounded in, uh, as he points out, what um, C.B. Macpherson called possessive individualism, the emergence in early modern Europe of the idea that to be a full person, you had to own property. And that this was not just about the ownership of territory, it was about having a culture, as, as Handler rather nicely puts it. I think that argument is still very compelling. It's, it certainly explains the extraordinary resemblance among uh, national museums around the world. I remember once going into a museum in Korea and falling into conversation with a bunch of Thai teachers who were looking at the exhibit, and they were obviously somewhat bemused. And I pointed out to them, I said, this does look familiar, doesn't it? And I think they immediately you know, recognized that. Um, of course, those kinship uh, modalities can also be uh, massaged into uh, even clearer recognition uh, in terms of local languages and local ideas about the ideal sorts of kinship. Uh, and there are also sometimes uh, interesting confusions or intentional confusions. For example, in China, the word for um, a country or a, 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 a nation, if, if you will, uh, includes the element jia, which also means patriline and family, nuclear family and home. So uh, similarly in Crete, where I was working, uh, rather cleverly, uh, the villagers would uh, confuse, and I, I say cleverly because I think it was not entirely unintentional, uh, they would confuse uh, the idea of the patrilineal clan uh, with the idea of the nuclear family by calling them both ikoyenia. Now, ikoyenia is the standard modern Greek word for family, but it contains the element yenya, which actually means patrilineal clan. So it's important also to look at uh, what happens in language, and there you see this alchemy through which uh, kinship links of various kinds at the local level are manipulated by uh, the uh, managers of national discourses to create a sense of loyalty and belonging. Nice. Um, I particularly found your alternative reframing of the concept of religion in conversations about the nation state and the subversive archaism very compelling. So what makes this reframing of religion as cosmology more effective for this discussion? Thank you for that question. I, I have long felt that uh, the term religion, but it was certainly an improvement on uh, superstition, for example, um, but it tended to isolate religion as something inferior to science. Now, we may believe that religion offers inferior explanations to science. I'm sure some people do, and but... Uh, if we take an anthropological perspective on this, I would argue that this is, A, very Eurocentric. It's actually simply uh, re reproducing the Enlightenment uh, hierarchy. Um, 
Uh, and at the same time, uh, I think it's, uh, uh, it, it somehow demotes uh, a form of knowledge about the things that we simply cannot know directly. That's what both religion and science often deal with. So just as we could talk about physics as a form of cosmology or geography as a form of cosmology, let's talk about religion as a cosmology. It's an explanation of how the world, cosmos in Greek, actually works. It also is a way of talking about people because cosmos in modern Greek just doesn't just mean the world, it also means people. So we, even when we talk about gossip, we'll say, you know, that's what or cosmos uh, says, meaning that's what people are gossiping about. Um, so simply, uh, I, I think that the, this move is, is important because it allows us to think of, of religion as one of a whole series of ways in which human beings try to come to terms with the fact they can't read each other's minds. They don't really know how nature works. They don't really understand what lies beyond our immediate perception of the physical world we live in. We, uh, uh, I, I mean, I tend to believe what most scientists tell me about the universe as they understand it, because this is the best bet I have available to me. Um, I tend to think that some religious specialists can give me very good advice about ethics, not all of them, of course, and we might uh, argue one way and another about that. Um, and, and it also depends on particular individuals you're talking to. But this is my point, that, that religion shouldn't be treated as a thing apart that then is liable to be dismissed as unimportant. After all, whole wars are being fought even as we speak in the name of religion. Uh, there's a great deal of intolerance that is practiced in the name of religion. It's not all good things, and cosmology is not necessarily morally acceptable in all its forms. In fact, it very often isn't. But by treating religion as cosmology, we're showing it the same respect that we show to other forms of knowledge. And to me, that is important. Yeah, that's very fascinating. Um, in the book, you also talk about the concept of a polity and the localization of that concept in the areas where you are working. So could you speak a little bit about that? Sure. It's actually quite central. You know, when I first uh, conceived of this book, it was in response to the invitation from the University of Rochester Anthropology Department to give the Morgan Lectures. And that's, that was the basis of the book. And and I first published uh, the main lecture under the title under which it was originally given, What is a Polity? Because it seems to me that there's a constellation of words that we use, uh, polity, but also civility, for example, that has to do with some sense of the relationship between a conceptual and also often spatial organization of society uh, with ideals of appropriate behavior, um, uh, the ideals of, of essentially the behavior that makes social life possible. Now, uh, people have often used polity in the past simply to think about those that are now available to us, which for the most part means nation states. I'm trying to resuscitate it here as a way of saying, wait a minute, the nation state is a Johnny-come-lately and actually, there are many other kinds of polity, and these subversive archaeists, consciously or otherwise, and I wouldn't presume to know how far they're conscious of what they're doing, have latched onto 
the spectral traces, if you will, uh, of those polities and have brought them into the foreground for their own purposes. Uh, in, and again, the examples of Greece and Thailand are directly comparable, shocking though that may seem, because Greece, after all, is associated with the idea of the polis, which is the term from which we get the word polity, and also politics, but also police, we shouldn't forget. Uh, it's not all good, as I say. Um, and and in, in the case of Pomahakan, in the case of Bangkok, we're looking at uh, people who consciously or otherwise are resurrecting uh, a, a notion of uh, the projection of the divine order, again, a cosmological concept, the mandala, uh, onto a territory. Uh, and it's a projection that doesn't look like a modern nation state in part because it's very flexible. Its outer edges contract and expand according to the uh, nature of the power at the center. Uh, it's a very widespread concept all through Southeast Asia. Uh, and uh, uh, I saw it in the, that small community of Pom Mahakan in Bangkok where I was doing research when, for example, there was a meeting uh, of the whole community and I suddenly saw that people were sitting in a more than a semicircle, it was sort of a three-quarters circle, with the president standing essentially where you would expect the king to be enthroned and telling the community what he thought ought to be done. The older men were seated and high up. They were seated on, on, on tables at the back. The women tended to sit a little bit lower down, but still at the back if they were of a certain age. In the front, you had the young people, especially young women, who'd taken their shoes off as a sign of respect so that they would sit on a carpet that was put right in front of the president. And they were quite vocal, uh, so that by accepting their relatively humble position in the structure, they were also claiming the right to speak as representatives of that position. Now, this is not what people in the West understand as a democratic system, but it certainly is a system that allowed them a great deal of, of voice. And it seemed to me physically quite clearly to reproduce that mandala-shaped structure um, with some coming and going, some expansion and contraction and so forth. I would be surprised if anyone in the community actually thought of it that way. But the mandala has always been a very influential form throughout the area, actually also beyond Southeast Asia. John Gray, for example, has written about how uh, in, in the Chetri community he studied in Nepal, uh, the mandala is understood to be the basis of the form of people's houses. Um, and we shouldn't forget again, since we've been talking earlier about scale, that you can go from the house to the community to the larger entity, the larger polity, and see parallels among them uh, uh, all the time. So uh, the idea that somehow this meeting would reproduce something uh, that was larger than the community itself harmonized very nicely with the uh, leaders' constant reiteration of the idea that they were just tualek, they were just a small piece uh, of a much larger uh, situation. So I, you know, I think that um, uh, the concept of polity was very useful to me in teasing out uh, these rather ghostly spectral presences, 
I'm now getting more and more interested in the idea of spectrality as something that actually haunts the uh, the, the nation state, uh, not in some <laughs> um, uh, some sci-fi sense or some uh, ghost, uh, some mystery writer's sense, but more it haunts them simply as a source of danger to the idea uh, of the uh, of the control of the nation state. Arjun Apadurai has written, for example, about spectral housing in Mumbai. And in a way, that's another example of the same uh, sort of thing. I see a lot of the, this kind of thing in the work that uh, Mariela Basagalupo has done with, uh, uh, with Mapuche shamans in, in, in Latin America, looking at how, uh, again, they conjure up some sort of uh, imagery that is cosmological in the sense that it is related to an understanding of a world that goes far beyond the immediately knowable universe of where you live. Uh, fascinating. Uh, this book has so much current, very urgent, very relevant um, conversation like going on and, you know, so diverse at the same time too. And other thing that you talk about in the book is that you didn't observe any hostility towards immigrants among communities like Palm Mahakan or uh, Zaniana, despite this hostility in more urban communities. Then you also talk about like a sharper class divide surfacing in um, these communities. Um, and you draw example from like a wide array of locations, cultures and communities. And you then caution against um, assuming that all subversive archives archives in the same way. So how do you compare these different archivisms and the shifts within archives and their communities? Well, a number of people have pointed out to me that uh, some of these people have in the past, or some people with very similar tendencies have turned out to be uh, fringe fascists or fringe anarchists or whatever. And I'm sure that does happen because uh, there are always opportunities when people feel that they are oppressed uh, for those who perhaps are a little bit more inclined to violence uh, to uh, act in this way. I should remind you that Pomahakan is an urban, not a rural community. It's right in the middle of Bangkok. It's in the old city of Bangkok. It looks like a rural community. And you can actually find similar sorts of arrangements um, in large cities elsewhere. But what's interesting is they're all being destroyed in the nature, in, sorry, in the name of uh, trying to have a centrally controlled uh, city form. So, for example, in Rome, when I first did research there, uh, the place where I was working was very much like a rural village. Everybody seemed to know everyone else. Within a week, I seemed to know a lot of people I met on the street. Um, that's all gone now uh, through gentrification. That was not directly the result of a government uh, policy, but it was certainly produced in part by government complicity with developers who were gentrifying the area for profit. Um, so uh, it's hard to generalize, and I don't actually think anthropologists are in the business of generalizing. That's partly why we're not very popular with other social sciences who like to be able to, or claim that they can uh, generalize. But uh, by setting up this model, I'm also suggesting that you could look at a number of uses of heritage and then decide on the basis of each one empirically whether it conforms to this pattern. 
I found it remarkable that it, both in Pomahakan and in Zonyana, there was a, an extraordinary degree of openness to outsiders. Uh, when uh, the tsunami hit Thailand in, 19, in 2004, uh, the people of Pomahakan held an auction to raise money to send two volunteers uh, down to help. The president said, we don't care whether these people are Muslims, which they mostly were, uh, or, or Buddhists or Christians or whatever, or whether they're foreign or Thai. The point is that we, as a community that suffers, understand this larger community of suffering. There you have that scalar connection again. And I think subversive arcades do demonstrate that kind of capacity. The Zonyani, the people of Zonyana, similarly, because of their clan structure, which is a classic segmentary structure. At first, I thought I was actually reliving a European version of that famous work by Evans Pritchard, the newer, you know, where he talks about um, segmentary clans. And in some ways, their social structure is very similar. That structure allows them also to leap from level to level in a scalar view. That probably partly explains why they uh, often evince a kind of uh, not just tolerance, but acceptance of people who are very different from themselves. It doesn't mean that there are no people there who are biased or that they don't have some forms of bias. I think you'll find plenty in both communities. But as communities, they do seem to express a kind of openness to otherness that would not be true, for instance, of some of the far-right groups that we see now beginning to uh, gain in visibility and especially audibility here in the U.S. or in, in Europe, uh, and, and, and which are a source of great anxieties. To, all, to me and should be to all of us. Um, these are places where people talk to each other and resolve their, their problems without the help of the state as far as possible. And I think that's something also that the state finds hard to tolerate. tolerate. Um, and they, while they say, you know, we're very proud of being Thai in the one case, Greek in the other, what they're saying is we do Thainess and Greekness much better than the government's. Let's not forget that Thailand was once known as Siam, and Siam was actually a multi-ethnic uh, polity. Again, it was a nation-state from the, from the early... Well, technically, I suppose we could say it became a, na a nation-state with the, with the arrival of the present dynasty in 1782, but it really only started to look like a standard European-type Western state in the middle of the 19th century. And... Um, that process, uh, I think, then led to a gradual emphasis, which then accelerated and has been very intense in recent years, on Thainess. Now, what's interesting is that in Greece, things have gone a little bit the other way in recent years. Greece was notorious for being extremely nationalistic. You probably remember the, the Macedonian conflict. Um, and there are certainly people who take very strong positions uh, in Greece on this. But it is a place where now you're not going to get attacked. At, at the worst, you'll get attacked verbally and sometimes in quite intelligent ways if you dare to say that the connection with ancient Greek isn't, it, it, culture isn't the whole story about modern Greek identity. Um, you know, I was made a, 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 an honorary citizen of Greece last year, and this is a very conservative government. I cannot help but think that it is a sign of a real change in the country that somebody like me with, you know, what 
I'm sure some people see as subversively archaistic tendencies, um, could be honored in this way. Um, and I found it very moving. I should tell you that Zonyana made me an honorary citizen of the village three weeks later. So I have the state and the anti-state somehow <laughs> with me. And they, they like that idea. But, it, you know, jokes apart, it, it is, I think, really uh, interesting that these two communities and some of the others I talk about in the book don't really seem to make a big issue of rejecting outsiders. But it is also true that this kind of formation could morph into a fascist kind of uh, uh, ethno-nationalism that seeks to force the state to expel everyone who doesn't belong. Uh, Is that subversive archaism? Well, in the sense that they want to work against the bureaucrats, uh, I suppose it is, uh, and they find themselves often in opposition to the bureaucrats because the bureaucrats at least are paying lip service to the idea of being more inclusive. Um, So these are cases that have to be examined individually, uh, one by one. Anthropology is fundamentally an empirical discipline. It generates theory that does not seek to uh, uh, produce broad uh, generalizations and testable hypotheses in the same way that, say, econometrics does. Um, I would say that theory in anthropology is much more like historiography or literary theory. That doesn't make it any less important, but it makes it much more uh, aligned with issues of interpretation. uh, And it also allows us then uh, to point out that some of the larger principles that are laid out by our colleagues in other social sciences uh, don't recognize the importance of exceptions. So I could see the notion, I see the notion of subversive archaism, uh, at least I so intended, to be a contribution to the discussion and critique of concepts like resistance. Uh, I also see it as something that might help us to understand Uh, these extreme far-right enclaves and their reactions to the state. Certainly, if we talk about the branch uh, uh, Davidians, uh, we might be dealing with something that is certainly on the edge of that that kind of um, uh, situation. Um, You know, it's interesting that the major anthropological work of that was done by James Fobian, who also did important research in Greece. Uh, Maybe there are certain places that are more conducive to this kind of analysis. But in any case, the model is useful not because it is predictive, but because it's heuristic. And I think that's also true of the concept of crypto-colonialism. I got into a lot of trouble in Greece with one uh, philosopher who had been described to me as a representative of the extreme center. <laughs> they talk about, you know, the, the relics of the old liberal order who's now sort of ha- desperately hanging on to a very conservative agenda, um, who said that uh, I was putting forward a theory that would fail the uh, Popperian test of falsifiability. And in fact, I don't think it does fail that test. Um, it, but what it does is it allows us to see that maybe there is more of a range of uh, options. So it has heuristic value in pushing us to ask about every community, 
that seems to be in difficulty with the state and is using the notion of heritage to fight back, is this in fact a strategy? Is it invoking some earlier uh, 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 notion or some local notion of heritage and is what it is evoking actually the sort of uh, half repressed presence that I am calling spectrality. Wow, that's so fascinating and also congratulations on the honorary citizenship. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) So (laughs) what does it entail? Like are you, you know, like are you a citizen now like or what? (laughs) Well, it's, it's always interesting to think about where a concept like this might take us um, as the world around us changes. And uh, the other thing that I I do think is important is that um, there are a lot of pressures now against anthropological research, one of which is that current ethics procedures, which frankly have very little to do with ethics and a great deal to do with liability issues for universities, a lot of these ethics procedures make it very difficult to do ethnography. And I would argue that they are therefore restrictions of academic freedom. There obviously has to be, must be, uh, uh, some degree of ethical um, oversight in any discipline. That goes without saying. But uh, the current form seems to me to have much more to do with protecting the interests of institutions. And in that sense, I suppose I'm a, an institutional subversive archaeist. I believe that uh, you know we should uh, challenge the accepted bureaucratic wisdom of our institutions to determine what is in fact an ethical way to do fieldwork. Um, I do know this: that when I went to Zonjana, I was told in those days I went there to originally to do research on. Um, uh, on kinship. I was there for four months without discovering that people were raiding each other's flocks between villages and doing it reciprocally and quite systematically. It was only a couple of days before I left after that first uh, tour of four months of field work that uh, in a conversation with the village secretary, I discovered that, yes, this was going on quite regularly and that the people I had spotted and had asked him about were probably kin to the victims of a recent sheep theft who'd come to find their ritual kin, probably people where they were connected through baptism or marriage, um, in Zonjana to try to sort things out. So to cut a long story short, I came back the next year and did about a month of additional field work to determine whether this was something I could inquire into. Having shown that I knew some of this vocabulary and having also begun to master the local dialect, I managed to get people to talk about it and even to let me record their stories. And I ended up with something like, I don't know, 200 stories about animal theft and revenge and all of the things that are associated with that, including the ritual practices and a very interesting form of ritual reconciliation. Well, there were people in the village who said, don't talk about this. And, you know, if I were dealing with a present-day um, uh, IRB or something of that kind, I would, you know, the, the ethics control, I would have a difficult time persuading them that if the villagers told me not to talk about it, uh, I still wanted to do so. A, I think it's condescending to act as if your informants can't look after their own interests and can't argue back to you. So you should be prepared to discuss it with them as equals. And that also means sometimes arguing with them. B, 
some of what they were saying was the rhetoric of defending the state, but not necessarily their own interests. The book came out in 1985 in English. It was then translated into Greek in 2012. And I took, my wife and I took copies of the book to the village in early in 2013, only to discover that many of the villagers knew the book, had bought it, had already read it, and were delighted with it. And what that said to me was, what they've realized from reading the book is that the big difference between journalists and myself was that journalists usually would write about these things in a sensational way. I was treating animal theft as a social institution. That was the basis on which shepherds were able to create alliances in what is physically very difficult country. And they saw that immediately, and in a way, they were very appreciative of it. And certainly, I did not hear a single complaint. So, uh, of course, they know me very well. They know that I've, by learning their, their language, their local language, I've, I've shown that kind of respect as well. It made it possible for me to do my work. There was real reciprocity in that sense. And I continue to have a very close, affective relationship with the village. Now... People outside the village have an extraordinary view of it, and I talk about it a bit in the book, uh, that, for example, people will say, you're going to Zunya now, but they'll cut your throat, or words to that effect. One American friend was about to come up to the village with his family, and his local interlocutor said, but your colleague doesn't spend the night there, does he? Uh, you know, so there's all of this... Uh, uh, mythologizing of these wild people who turn out actually to be rather formal. The majority of the villagers disapproved of the violence that led to the death of a policeman in 2007 and certainly inflated the notoriety of the village beyond anything anyone could have imagined. Uh, the villagers nonetheless are also aware that they can play up that image when it suits them, when it's useful. After all, they might as well get something out of a, a set of ideas that has otherwise cost them rather a lot. Uh, so they are living always in communication with the outside world. This is not an isolated community. I'm not sure there are any isolated communities in the world anyway. Um, they're talking uh, to each other and to people like me, and I become then part of that dialogue. And I think that by writing a book like this, I hope, anyway, that I can show my readers that even though the idea of, of comparing an urban enclave in Thailand with a mountain village on the island of Crete might seem utterly lunatic, actually, the fact that one can show that there are really impressive similarities uh, in the way that they deal with the nation-state gives us a new understanding, not just of the local communities, but of the nature of the nation-state itself, and also of the possibility of alternative polities. So, um, uh, you know, I, 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 it, it's funny. When I started to write the book, I still had a lot of doubts. As I wrote it, it all began to fall into place. And one of the nice things about the act of writing is that very often your subconscious starts to kick in, and all the things that you vaguely sensed suddenly come into focus. And that certainly was my experience with this book. Yes, thank you so much. Um, so how do you suggest or advise that researchers or scholars should engage with this book? Well, I think that, first of all, 
uh, ethnography should be enjoyable to read. I hope this book is enjoyable. Uh, I enjoy the active writing. I don't, I hope, use too much jargon. Obviously, there is a theoretical dimension. Uh, I think over the years, my writing has loosened up a lot. Um, I'm a careful writer in the sense that I use words precisely, and I'm pretty fussy about syntax and so on. But at the same time, an anthropological book, and especially an ethnography, this book is in a way a double ethnography, should also be a work of art. I would argue, in fact, that ethnographic writing or ethnography as a practice is one of the few things that allows you to be a scientist and an artist at the same time. So that might be a very good framework in which to approach the book. Great. Thank you so much. It's been so wonderful to talk to you about the book. I had such a great time reading it. I really Thank appreciate you. your time. Um, this is Ikrash Gupta Chima, your host for the New Books Network. Thank you so much for joining us today.